0: focusing our attention on Jesus Christ and by opening up His Holy Scriptures. I know of no better place to turn to start 2021 off on the right foot, so to speak. Would you open your Scriptures with me this morning, as is our privilege and honor to do so, considering God's Holy Word in 1 Peter chapter 4. We continue our communion series in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11 today, and the title of this morning's message is Advent Perspective. Advent perspective, a frame of mind that we glean from God's purposes in history. I believe this is the theme and this is the tone in the introduction of this summary portion of 1 Peter 4. And I believe it's also fitting for us as we enter this new year. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to prepare ourselves for the challenges of our day via apostolic wisdom. We can be prepared for the challenges of our day by paying heed to the wisdom of Peter, the apostle. And we do so by turning to his epistle, chapter 4, the first one, chapter 4, 7 through 11. So, as you are able, would you stand this morning out of reverence for God's word, with your Bible open to 1 Peter 4, or your attention drawn to the screen in front of you? Listen as the infallible word of Christ is declared in your hearing today. Peter writes, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Uh, young people, question for you. What does Advent mean? Can anyone tell me what Advent means? Somebody, the, Lord is the Lord is coming. Thanks, George. That's a, great, that's a great definition. Advent, I think it's a Latin word, at least as a Latin derivative. It means coming or arrival. As George reminds us, the Lord is coming. It could, it's attached to the idea of fulfillment, appointed time. And here's a phrase I wrote associated with my own Advent meditations this year. The culmination of the purposes and direction of history as God has ordained it. The culmination of the purposes and direction of history as God has sovereignly ordained it. This is the kind of context and perspective that Peter provides for the church who he writes to in 1 Peter 4:7 through 11 Who does he write to? We are reminded in 1 Peter 1:1 that he, the apostle, Peter, writes, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles, putting these two thoughts together, will endure in Peter's words as they live, or according to his instructions, elect exiles will endure as they live in light of absolutes and ultimates, that which is absolutely true and that which will ultimately come to pass. Absolutes and ultimates ground the hope, the conviction, the confidence, and the sustainability, if you will, of believers in every age, no matter the challenges. The unchanging truths of the gospel, said another way, the unchanging truths of the gospel serve to bring the Lord maximal glory and will provide ballast stones in the hull of of the believer's vessel, stabilizing him even through the roughest of seas. I, I love this analogy and so I can't resist but bring it up every once in a while. Uh, A vessel, when I was young, I used to read uh, stories of sailing vessels, ships that would cross the seas, you know, under heavy weight of sail. And I I still, I enjoy sailing myself in much smaller vessels. Well, a well-designed ship, especially one that can go across rough seas, high winds, long uh, journeys, is designed with a deep hull. That is, the bottom of the boat goes, cuts deep into the water. And what you'll find in a well-designed craft or vessel of this sort is weights down there. And you guys remember like the bobbleheads or whatever with the weighted base, and if you push them and they rock back up? A well-designed ship is, ship is like that. It has ballast stones in the hull that provide stability through rough seas. Well, Peter provides some ballast stones for us. Elect exiles will endure in light of absolutes and ultimates. The ballast stones, if you will, in uncharted waters, in, uh, at least from our perspective, or in difficult times of tumult and tension as far as the circumstances appear to us anyway and these stones if you will these ballasting truths are the gospel itself serving to bring the lord maximal glory and providing for us the foundation to keep us enduring steadfast even confident and undaunted in the face of as peter describes it even fiery and extreme trial so praise the Lord for sufficient grace and means in times such as ours if you feel like this word applies. Traditionally this time of year <clears throat> this time of year corresponds with the closing of the so-called Advent season. Advent as we reminded ourselves this morning means coming or arrival or the fulfillment of important events in history. And of course Advent traditionally is associated with the incarnation Christmas the prophecies of old, of the Messiah coming, He finally arrived, the coming of the Lord, the coming in time, the appointed time, Jesus came. And as Anna and Simeon, for example, the temple stared into the eyes of the baby Messiah, they had an advent awakening. They realized that the appointed time <coughs> was here. That is, the culmination of the purposes and direction of history had in God's sovereign hand come to pass, even in their eyes, even be in their lifetime. Now Peter incorporates, may I submit, Advent language in this section of his epistle when he prefaces his summary admonition with this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. So notice in 1 Peter 4, 7, he begins this little summary portion by saying, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled. That therefore statement or phrase there is a connecting word And I suggest that from there, Peter gives us a perspective point. In other words, what do we look to for perspective? We look to the advent or God's purposes. The end of all things is at hand, he says. We'll discuss what that might mean a little later. But because the end of things is at hand, because God is fulfilling promises in time, therefore have an advent-shaped perspective. He goes on to say, be self-controlled and sober-minded among other things. Peter incorporates Advent language in this section, in this preface, the end of all things is at hand. In this way, Peter advocates for an Advent-shaped worldview, if you will. Not limited, this Advent perspective should not be seen as limited to a seasonal tradition, however, but it is an essential mindset for the faithful Christian in all of life and in every age. We should remember a biblical philosophy, if you will, of history at all times, because this perspective will provide ballast stones, will provide endurance for us, and an unshakable confidence in the gospel, no matter the era in which we live. This is the Advent perspective, if you will. Not limited to a seasonal tradition, but a mindset for the faithful Christian in all of life and in every age. One commentator has observed the following of this passage, quote, the tense of the imperatives. So that means the way that Peter structures, even in the, in the grammar, the grammar of his commands, if you will. The tense of his imperatives in the Greek, the original language, carries out the notion that the persons addressed had slipped into a careless state from which they needed an arousal. So the theme or the, uh, the kind of tone of Peter's words was meant to wake up the church. That's what the... This commentator is saying. An Advent perspective is needed to wake up the sleeping church. And we fall asleep, don't we? Or we're tempted to, or we have a tendency to, often through various means. Perhaps through uh, discouragement. Uh, Dave's recent message comes to mind. When we live in an era where it feels like there's encroaching darkness, it can lead to anguish, or it can lead to that darkness encroaching upon our soul, that despair or distress. And then that anguish, that feeling of being trapped, confined, claustrophobically tied to the circumstances of our hour, and this might cause us to fall asleep or to grow discouraged or to become impotent or to take a back seat to what we feel are more powerful forces around us. In times like these, whether through the discouragement of external evil or even sins that we fight in our own soul, the tense of the imperatives, the tone of Peter's admonition, bids us To wake up, to be shaken awake from our careless state, and to be reminded of an Advent perspective. An Advent perspective is needed to wake up the sleeping church, and in many ways, as I judge it, the church is asleep today. Certainly, we could be more awake than we are, generally speaking. So how do we wake up the church? I used an illustration earlier this last year of smelling salts. A similar idea, those salts are passed underneath the nose in somebody who might be in a sedated or a stupor. All of a sudden, it it wakes you up, returns your senses and faculties to you in a sudden moment. These kinds of Scripture, or these areas, these passages of Scripture are the kinds of things that are smelling salts for the soul. They're meant to wake up. They're alarm bells and they're perspective supplying themes for us to get our grounding once again. A summary of Peter's letter To the church could be stated, may I suggest, with these five verses. These five verses serve as a sort of parenthetical synopsis. That's like a summary interjected in the middle. It's a summary of Peter's letter to the churches of Asia Minor in a few weighty sentences. And its purpose is to reinforce them in the midst of trial. He will soon say that in spite of this fiery trial that you're going through, my words in the word of God through him, the inspired words of the apostle, this uh, direction uh, that he is calling their attention to, the perspective-shaping admonition, will provide for them hope and will provide for them grounding in the day of uncertainty. And of course, we have many applications, do we not, for the value of a text like this in our day. So may we draw certainty, may we draw from the same well of endurance, maintaining an advent perspective, if you will, in our day as well. So with that intro, let me give you a heading. An Advent perspective requires three things. And these are pretty simple in in the structure of my outline. It's a very basic text, but I think it is very valuable and essential. An Advent perspective requires, number one, a level head. Put simply, and in a common phrase you might be used to, a level head. This would be verse 7. Secondly, an Advent perspective requires a soft heart. We know what a soft heart is. It's a heart that has a desire to be Christ-like, loving, giving, generous, and so forth. And these are themes that also color verses 8 and 9. An Advent perspective will produce a level head, a soft heart. And finally, properly motivated stewardship. Properly motivated stewardship. These are three things that attend an Advent perspective, according to Peter. Let us dig deep, a little deeper into our text today as we seek to glean from his instructions. Number one, an Advent perspective requires a level head. Notice 1 Peter 4:7 again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's perhaps three aspects in that one uh, verse there that are pretty significant. First of all, there's a perspective point, the end of all things at hand. Secondly, there's a way to live in light of that. Two terms he uses, self-controlled and sober-minded. And thirdly, there's a motivation or effect for the sake of your prayers. So a level head, spiritually speaking, an Advent perspective, uh, is a perspective that we have in spite of the hour in which we live, if you will. Secondly, it leads to a state of heart that is described as self-controlled and sober-minded. And thirdly, it has implications for our prayer life. Number one, a level head... Uh, at some point here, in spite of the hour, isn't this interesting? How Peter phrases this: "The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded." So think about that. It's almost a con. It's also it's almost like a, c- a contrast or counterintuitive. I'll use a phrase that you might have heard before: "The sky is falling." The sky is falling. So chill out. Now, do you ever? That following the, the call, the sky is falling? No, that, that surprises you, doesn't it? The sky is falling, everybody panic. That's what you expect to hear next. So, Peter is announcing something of finality, and perhaps there's a lot of cataclysmic implications involved with it. The end of all things is at hand. What does he mean there? Well, wrapped up in the end of all things is likely a number of trying scenarios, including in the context of his book here, Even Fiery Trials. So fiery trials are at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. The end is at hand, therefore be level-headed. It's sort of a surprising admonition. What we consider first here in the context is Peter's recommended frame of mind runs cross-grain to our natural response. and So we can relate to this. In times of heightened tension, crisis, weight, significance, Many uh, you know, times we can feel this even in our day. When it appears that we have every good reason for reactive panic, the admonition from Scripture is quite the opposite. Instead of reacting in panic, Peter admonishes us to be sober and self-controlled. The sky is falling, everybody settle down. Jesus is in control. A phrase I have been applying to our times is this. So I've been thinking quite a lot about this because my own soul can easily be rattled by the conditions around me. Peace of mind in times of crisis should not be dismissed or misunderstood as not taking pressing issues seriously. In other words, you can take pressing issues seriously and still have peace of mind. And these are two things that can exist in the same soul. And don't forget it, because it's really the only way to remain unrattled in really trying times to have a peace and an assurance and at the same time realize that there are very difficult times that we live in right now and very pressing issues probably, an only, probably only a fool would deny as much that will face us in this next year. But notice what Peter is advocating for is a superior power if you will or superior force that will attend us or a superior frame of mind that will allow us to cope with our surroundings. In other words, Peace of mind is a weapon, if you will. We should realize that a level head, if you will. We should realize that a sober-mindedness and a self-controlled spirit, in spite of times that would otherwise induce panic, is a more sufficient means for us to effectively advance the kingdom of God and shine even brighter as a light to those who are feeling the chaos of our day and to hold out hope for the unbeliever. The ballast stones are all the more important when the seas are rough. The lighthouse is all the more reassuring when there is a danger that our ship will become wrecked upon the reef. And the foundation of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our hope and foundation, should be all the more reassuring to us when it feels like we are being uh, challenged on every side. So that is a bit of the context here. The people of Peter's day were living in times that would shake and try the soul. Nevertheless, he admonishes them not toward reactive panic, but instead to be self-controlled and to be sober. And we'll explore a little bit more of what that means in a moment. This is a better fortified position for the soul, outfitted with these means, with this advent perspective, by sufficient and superior weapons to effectively stand to push back the kingdom of darkness, to advance the cause of Christ, and to remain enduring when others are shaken. A similar concept we've referenced recently comes from the book of Hebrews. Why does God shake things up? So that that which cannot be shaken will remain. Tie yourselves, tie your souls in 2021 to that which cannot be shaken. Because as the Lord continues to shake the surroundings, the society around us, as COVID restrictions continue, As fears of political fallout mount, as the uncertainty of the direction of America and the world continues apace, tie yourself to what cannot be shaken, and then you will remain. And more than this, you will provide a mooring post for others. People will ask you, according to 1 Peter 3, the reason for the hope within you. When you remain self-controlled and sober-minded in a day where those things are very hard to maintain, don't be surprised if an unbeliever says, Why are you so calm in the face of this uncertainty? Or even another believer who is struggling with anxiety, stress, and their faith being rattled or shaken in a time of uncertainty. Don't be surprised if they ask you, why do you seem unfazed by the latest news or all of the crisis that seems to be surrounding us? And your answer can be, I have tied myself, or I seek to tie my soul to that which cannot be shaken. That is Jesus Christ. And your opportunity to shine will be all the more magnified when you do as much. So this is a level head in spite of the hour that Peter advocates for. Now secondly, in spite of the hour, what does Peter exactly mean when he says the end of all things is at hand? Well, this is a debated topic to be sure. What might Peter be referring to? Well, here's some options that you'll probably run across in various commentaries. Perhaps Peter is referring to the end of the old covenant order because the old covenant order is coming to a close, maybe that's what he means when he says the end of all things is at hand. Secondly, some suggest that Peter might be speaking to the reality and expectations of God's judgments manifested in time. So he could be speaking to the inevitable end of the Roman Empire because it had been so corrupted from the inside that it inevitably would fall under God's judgment and the end of this society was at hand, some suggest. Number three, could refer to the full scope of Christ's redemptive work from his birth all the way to Pentecost. In other words, the end of all things that relate to salvation is at hand. We've experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit certified at Pentecost. Therefore, uh, be self-controlled and so forth. Or it could refer to the death of any person at any given time. Certainly the end of our lives is at hand and that life is short and death is certain. And then we go for one final option, the second coming itself. All things must refer, many say, to all, of, all things in history and in its totality, and therefore Peter is speaking of the second coming. Well, I suggest that some clarity in this regard can be drawn from the context, and for that I'll turn you to 2 Peter 3, 4 through 9. And perhaps all of the above could actually fit when we see it in light of Peter's second epistle. In 2 Peter uh, 3, 4 through 9, um, we have these words that Peter continues to encourage the church with. He says of the world around, the wicked culture, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perish. So notice there that those who have an ungodly worldview deliberately overlook the record of God's intervention in history past. In other words, in a perspective-shaping reality or event for us is to remember that God did not endure with the wicked world forever, but by judgment in the form of a flood. And it was right to feel a sense of urgency, even if there was 100, 120 years remaining, if you were Noah. Because during that time, you were busy about God's purposes in salvation. The ark being prepared, the gospel being preached. And if God was so gracious to wait a long time, you know, a century plus, before the waters started to rise around the ankles of the unbeliever, nevertheless... That feeling of urgency, that sense of perspective, is still applied. By this, he says in verse 7, the same world, or by the same word, excuse me, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. And then here's something else he tells us, do not overlook. So before he said, they deliberately overlooked this fact, but now he says, do not overlook this one fact. So this is admonition for the church. Beloved, verse 8 that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So the perspective-shaping realities that Peter gives the church could apply, may I suggest, to all of the above. The end of all things is at hand. Peter could be referring to God's purposes in all of history that will come to a climax. But remember, God does not mark time as we do. Nevertheless, this sense of urgency... As many years as God tarries, we should be about the business, just like Noah was, of proclaiming about the business of salvation, proclaiming hope in Jesus Christ alone. And if God's mercy and grace endures with this wicked world, this wicked nation, uh, uh, one year longer, we should take advantage of the opportunity to thank Him for His long-suffering kindness and to proclaim hope in Christ alone. And in this case, every year that God adds to the lifespan of this world under these conditions only magnifies His long-suffering kindness, His steadfast love and grace. But we, with a level head and an Advent perspective, should remain busy, to remain engaged, and to remain faithful to proclaim hope and salvation in Christ alone all the while. So this is a bit of perspective that we gain from the greater context and from the immediate as well. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. An Advent perspective requires a level head. And Peter describes this level-headedness as being self-controlled and sober-minded. So these two words, if you look them up in a lexicon, like the Greek explained <clears throat> a little more thoroughly, it's a God-defined true moderation that self-control refers to. It's a sober estimate of oneself. It's a curbing of one's passions. So in summary language, Peter is referring back to admonitions that he's already hit several times in his epistle. Chapter 1, 3, and following is one of them. He says, or excuse me, uh, 13 and 14. In chapter 1 he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So a sober mind is one who sets his hope fully on the grace that is brought to us in Jesus Christ. Verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So sober-mindedness, or self-controlled state for the believer, is to reject the passions of our former ignorance and instead to set our hope fully on the grace of God. He details some of these passions of our former ignorance as his letter continues. Verse 1. So put away, or chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. It says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. And even in chapter 4, earlier, in our last message, we covered this. He says in verse 3. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So that's the opposite of sober-mindedness. Those lists are the opposite of what it means to be self-controlled. And notice how you stand out by contrast in a wicked culture when you do not indulge in these sinful proclivities. They malign you, that is, they make fun of you or they seek to marginalize you. Why? Because your your, uh, passion for holiness makes them feel guilty. Your passion for holiness and righteousness of Scripture reminds a wicked world of their sin. But have the Advent perspective. This is a good thing. If people are reminded of their sin because you seek to follow the righteous one, not because you're righteous in and of yourself, but He's changed your desires, it gives you the opportunity, by contrast, to point to that which is truly unshakable. That which will survive the judgment of the coming day. That which will endure forever. That which is unshaken. That which is holy, just, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. As Dave quoted that passage for us recently. There be any virtue, any praise, think on these things. Pursue these things and reject sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, and the like that attend our unregenerate way prior to coming to Christ. Now, think of uh, another cross-reference would be our Genesis study and the life of Lot. Remember, Lot was guilty of drunkenness. In his drunkenness, actually, he was exploited by his daughters in an incestuous relationship to try to secure future lineage. But this theme of drunkenness in Scripture, we ventured to say, moves beyond the immediate circumstances, and it represents something uh, broader than just that one instance, I shouldn't have drunk, uh, drank too much wine. No, what Lot was missing in his life was a self-controlled and sober-minded Advent perspective, if you will. God's purposes in history, which would give him an entirely different mindset and would not have contributed to the mal-discipleship of his family. In this sense, drunkenness, biblically, can be associated with the following. We've said this before. Suspension of our godly faculties. A dulling of the spiritual senses. A falling under the influence of our sinful nature and its unsanctified passions. A growing lazy at our post, guarding the spiritual perimeter of our homes, rendering ourselves and our families. In the context of Lot, we see this quite obviously. Rendering ourselves and our families to the destructive forces of sin. So we combine these ideas, we can see why Peter advocates for a level-headed Advent perspective. Because we're surrounded by the influences and the corruption of a Lot-like society, if you will, to defend the boundaries, this covenantal vigilance that we're called to to emphasize the priority, the beauty and the value and the glorious pursuits and goals of that which Christ, that which is associated with the Lord and His glory and His law and His purposes. Those are the things that give us sufficient weapons to establish a perimeter such that the enemy cannot encroach. With these tools in our hand, as Paul identifies them in another place, the armaments of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel and outfitted, uh, among other things, with the sword of the Spirit in our hands, which is the word of God, we will be impervious to the attacks of the wicked one. The shield of faith will block the fiery darts of his temptations each and every time. And with this kind of preparedness, even in a day such such as ours, a self-controlled, sober-minded, level-headedness, shaped by an Advent perspective, we will be successful in glorifying the Lord and standing against the wicked one, and it has implications for our prayers. In 1 Peter 4 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, a reference, a cross reference, <clears throat> that gives a little more detail as to this concept is back in chapter 3. 3 7, this is with respect to husbands. So listen up, men who have wives. Families, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What hinders prayers? Covenantal apathy. I appreciated a text message the other morning from Mark. He sent me a text. We've been encouraging one another to open up the Scriptures and to spend time nourishing our souls on the wellspring of living water, therein contained, if you will. And Mark said it this way. He said, don't forget to punch covenantal apathy in the face this morning, brother. Don't forget to punch covenantal apathy in the face. And I thought, man, that's a rallying cry that a father, that a pastor, that a dad, that a man, uh, for that matter, a woman, a child, needs to hear. Wake up in the morning, avail yourself of God means, God's means, and punch covenantal apathy in the face because when you fight for godliness in your own heart, and when you fight for godliness in your own home, your prayers will not be hindered, but you will be advancing the kingdom of God in ways that you otherwise would be handicapped in. Peter goes on to emphasize this even more by quoting from Psalm 34, 12 through 16, and 1 Peter 3.10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, so don't you desire to love life and see good days? I mean, we've all lamented, the poor quality of life and the dark days of 2020, have we not? We have desires in 2021, as I heard in one podcast this last week, to give a whole new meaning to 2020 hindsight. Clever way of putting it, right? But whoever would desire to love life and to see good days, this is what he must do. We continue, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It is presumptuous to think our prayers will be answered if we don't have a growing and abiding passion for the glories of Christ and for the holiness that He commands the Christian to walk in. For the sake of your prayers, be level-headed, Be sober-minded, be self-controlled. For the sake of your prayers, be faithful in your relationships, in your covenants, in your home. For the sake of your prayers, love the Lord, obey His law, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit, and seek peace and pursue it. This is a message of sanctified direction for those who are in Christ. And it will provide for us what we need to get through whatever times we may find ourselves in. These are the implications for prayer that Peter emphasizes. The stability of our reassured souls will translate into effective and a meaningful prayer life. Unhindered prayer is associated with our call toward righteousness sake. He reprises his call toward unhindered prayer uh, from these prior passages. And so we see practical applications of this in our own life. And this is something that I, indeed, have a growing conviction of. And it goes like this. One of the most powerful weapons that I have in my arsenal to push back the corruption of a society who may well have just sold the election integrity of America's future down the drain, some of the most powerful weapons in my hands to fight that corruption is loving my wife in a godly way is training my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's doing a good job teaching co-op, uh, instructing the kids in this next session, this next semester, to understand scripture on its own terms. It's to share Jesus Christ with my neighbor, or someone asked me for a reason why the mask is off in Costco, and to explain to them something significant about my heart, my convictions, and my ultimate allegiance to the Lord. These are powerful weapons. These can push back the darkness. And it seems counterintuitive that they would be that close to home. How can we affect culture? Well, we do so by being faithful in the things that God has given primary primary responsibility to. And then our prayers for the broader culture are less hindered. And by God's grace and His sovereignty and for His glory, a nation can be reformed. There's a mystery to it. A revival can be sparked. It happens in a small, insignificant corner of our lives, but it can grow into a powerful effect. And Why does God purpose it this way? It's the way He always works, so that He might be glorified because in an unconventional way, He has seen fit to show His grace and mercy to preserve a people whose hearts are convicted to be obedient in the day-to-day. A level head. Secondly, a soft heart. An Advent perspective requires a soft heart. 1 Peter 4 8 and 9. Above all, he admonishes us, the church, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Wow, those are very simple applications, are they not? That's a very close to home thing that you can do. Don't you agree? Love one another earnestly. Show hospitality without grumbling. This would be the soft heart that comes with the Advent perspective. Because God is sovereign over history, earnestly love your brother. The body of Christ is my in-group preference. I had a a conversation with somebody last week, and I just said that. And this notion of in-group preference is something that sociologists, people who study human relationships, refer to. It's basically, you know, the world recognizes it's inescapable that you have some people you prefer to hang out with, the exclusion of others. And, you know, without thinking too deeply about it, this is used as leverage for whatever narrative is out there. You know, you're a racist because you prefer to hang out with this group or the other group. But here's the thing. God has defined the order of his world by relationships. And there is a priority and a hierarchy and a value structure to it. So the question is not if you will have in-group preferences, but what your in-group preferences are, if you will, to borrow the language of the social sciences. Well, for us, we are the body of Christ and we share an experience in common that is unparalleled in the universe. We have experienced the death of Jesus Christ and the most precious of all blood, the most precious of all commodities shed on our behalf. And because this has happened, because we are in confessing our sins and experiencing the blood of Jesus washing away our sins, we have been incorporated into the family of God. And if that's you today, you are my brother, you are my sister. I prefer to hang out with you. I love you. We have the same Father, we have the same brother in Christ, we have the same God who ransomed us from our sin, the most dramatic miracle in all of world history in many ways, at least individually for the human being. And because the precious blood of Jesus Christ has been shed and shed for you and shed for me, how strong do you think that communion bond ought to be? Should it not manifest itself in earnest love for one another? Now beware of those who grow jaded with the church. Yes, there is much reason to pray that the church would wake up to be who she is called to be. But I challenge you to find in the apostolic record any jaded attitude that Peter, Paul, or others had with every reason to throw the church under the bus because of flagrant immorality in their midst. I challenge you to find a moment where they didn't earnestly, with deep and abiding love, desire to even lay down their own lives if necessary in order that they might be in true, meaningful, abiding, powerful relationship and fellowship with their brothers and sisters whom Jesus shed his own blood for. This is the Advent perspective. Because Jesus came in time, because he was born of a woman, because he took on flesh, because he stooped so low in his condescension to save us, Because that was such an incredible miracle of God's redemptive work. That ought to inform our relationships. And again, when the world sees this powerful bond of communion one to another, will it not witness and testify to an experience that we share in common above any other? Everybody organizes around common experiences. This is the essence of community. Community. It's just a question of what is the most profound experience that creates the strongest bond of relationship possible. First of all, it's our bond with Jesus Christ. And secondly, it's one to another because he has died for the both of us. So above all, Peter says, in light of all this, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He also says, or encourages us to express this in joyful, if you will, hospitality. Verse 9, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Think of cancel culture. The world is growing more and more inhospitable to your and my worldview. <clears throat> the world is excommunicating us from the fellowship of their communities. the places So we do not fall into the in-group preference of a world corrupted in its sin. So should this freak us out? Well, there are certainly aspects of the cancel culture that are wicked must be called out, and there needs to be repentance and clarity in this regard. And it is sinful, obviously, to reject those who bear the only hope. But one thing it should not do is make us feel insecure, or make us feel like we are somehow deprived of meaningful relationships because the world hates us. And how can we be reminded of this? By the powerful bond of hospitality and earnest love that we have one with another? What gives you the grace to endure persecution with a smile on your face? What gives you the grace to push back even in an age where the weapons of the wicked ones seek to suppress your faith through psychological warfare? Realizing that I can stand encouraged, confident, and strong, and with good self-esteem, if you will. I'm not sure if that's the word. Identity in Christ, let's put it that way. Because of the reality of the relationships that are forged in his blood if you invite me over to dinner and it is a joyful time we've had a couple of these i'm sure you had as well where believers come over and you spend the i remember you know during the worst of the covid fears when a lot of us tried to you know err on the side of wisdom and spent a lot more time in our homes as usual and then after a few months we're like uh ah, enough of this already and have a bunch of people over and broke the covid restrictions or whatever when everybody came in to our house. I'll never forget the joyful overflow of shared conversation and communion that we had. It was amazing. It was awesome. And I appreciated it all the more in the absence of such a thing. Do not let the world and its ideals of preservation of physical life at all costs convince you that there should be restrictions on the assembly of the body of Jesus Christ. No, we fight against these COVID mandates because we earnestly love one another, and we show joyful hospitality. And we will not let a fearful, paranoid culture, you know, enslave their whole lives to the fear of death. Tell us otherwise, regardless of their stated, uh, whatever intentions, you know, in our best interests or whatever. No, once you get really down to the bottom of it, you see that to live joyfully. Encouraged and bold in our day is tied to earnest love and hospitality one for another. You can't show hospitality socially distanced. You have to break the COVID rules, as it were, in order to show hospitality by definition. So there you have it. You have instructions from a higher authority still, Jesus Christ, to open up your homes to one another. In spite of the very minor, relatively speaking, risk, it might dem- or it might. Constitute a soft heart and a level head. Now, ultimately, Peter's so good at this, he ties this right back to the work of Jesus Christ. He says that our earth's love for one another covers a multitude of sins. In other words, our love for one another models Jesus' love for us. Love covers a multitude of sins. We are motivated by the efficacy and the example of the cross when we cover a multitude of sins in our love for one another. As we remember how Jesus has washed our sins away, it's a lot easier for us to overlook our own faults and the faults with a brother. This isn't to bypass any necessary discipline or addressing issues the way the Bible brings up, but it is to say we don't let the frailty and fallenness of our human condition stand in the way of modeling the same grace and atonement that God has expressed to us when we relate to one another. And in this way, we maintain, even in our relationships within the church, and I pray that you would apply this and obey this into 2021, an Advent perspective. This brings up point number three this morning. An Advent perspective requires a level head, a soft heart, and thirdly, properly motivated stewardship. Verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verses 10 and 11 call us to be good stewards of God's varied grace. What a great phrase! God's varied grace refers to gifts unique to each individual that he grants us. There's varying uh, expressions and varying degrees of grace that he gives believers in the church. But as other pictures of the body of Christ show, the different members, when they're connected, serve the purpose of the whole. Jesus is the head, you might be the arm, I might be the foot, so on and so forth. These very graces, as we are good stewards of them, we use them to serve one another, and this is ultimately to the glory of God. There are two categories of gifts that Peter speaks of in summary by these two terms, speaking and serving. When we speak, anything that involves broadcasting, communicating ourselves, or, or communicating, you know, whether this be writing, or portraying, or revealing, or what, what have you, speaking, we are to do so as one who speaks the oracles of God. That is to say, how are we a, to be a good steward of God's grace to us, to express ourselves. Well, the way to do it is to speak not primarily our opinion, not primarily what others want to hear, but first and foremost to be mindful of our opportunity to convey and to communicate in light of what God's Word says. We think of the oracles of God, what ought we think of? Think of Scripture, the Word of God in Scripture, that ought to shape our self-expression, our expression of ourselves, our communication one to another, what we share, what we uh, exchange by way of ideas and one to another. Think of authority. When God speaks, not, there's not a word that falls unfulfilled. There's no superfluous words in the, in the uh, testimony of the Lord. Think of clarity. Think of conviction. Think of truthfulness. Think of timelessness, that which will still be relevant long after this weird era we're living through is over. Think of power, think of conviction, think of holiness. These are uh, adjectives that would apply to the Word of God, to the oracles, to the truth that God conveys. And these are uh, what should motivate our own stewardship of the very grace or motivate our own speaking. Now, I have a little discernment test for you to apply. There are many who claim to speak on behalf of God, And I think this movement might grow. I see a weird uh, trend in the evangelical church of what I'm uh, tentatively calling patriot prophets. There's a lot of uh, hope invested in the future of America right now and the fact that we might well be on the precipice and it's really easy to understand why many of us are concerned as to the future. We have just about every good reason to do so in the culture and in the environment around us. However... When we're speaking to these things, we are to speak primarily as oracles of God. Here's a way to judge, pro, judge quote-unquote prophecy. It's by primary and secondary purpose. The primary purpose of prophecy, check this against Scripture, I submit to you is the following. To glorify God upon its fulfillment. Okay, so that would be predictive prophecy, prophecy of the future. The primary purpose of prophecy is to glorify God upon its fulfillment. Secondary purpose is to grant us hope in the meantime, all right? If you get those two reversed, you won't be speaking as to the oracles of God, but you will pervert prophecy. So there are many people who claim to be speaking prophecy right now, but its primary purpose is to give us hope in the meantime, not to glorify God upon its fulfillment. Why? Because a lot of these things are arbitrary, they don't meet the biblical standard of objective prophecy and so forth, perhaps well-intentioned and well-meaning individuals. However, if the primary purpose of claims to speak on behalf of God is to give us hope in the meantime, rather than to glorify Him, that is a discernment key that you need in analyzing prophecy. The prophecies in Scripture, not a single one has gone or will go unfulfilled. They do give us hope in the meantime, but they are the oracles of God absolutely precise, absolutely perfect, no ambiguity. They ultimately don't serve us. They ultimately serve God. And when that order is correct, it gives us, yes, reason to hope, but it gives us a proper stewardship of the varied graces of the Lord. And ultimately, it's not for our hope, but for His glory. So that would be an application. Speaking as one who speaks the oracles of God and then serving as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. That's category two. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The motivation, proper motivation for stewardship of God's gifts all relates to His glory. When we speak, we are to give the glory to God's Word. We are to base it on what He has spoken. When we serve, we are to acknowledge that it is His Spirit that works through us to accomplish anything of merit or anything of value. We serve not because of our own creativity, ingenuity, good ideas, not serve to promote ourselves, to gather a following, you know, to embellish our social media account or whatever, to seek the accolades and praises and admiration of our neighbors, all those things are poor stewardship. All those motivations are poor stewardship of God's grace. No, rather, we are to serve as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. Look time and again to the instructions of Paul. He says as much every time he says, I thank God that I worked harder than all y'all. Or whatever the, that's a southern paraphrase. I thank God that I worked harder than all you guys. Northern paraphrase. But he says, but nevertheless, it was not I who did it, but Christ who worked in me. Let us share that same attitude so that our heart and our faithfulness, our endurance, that we point to its true source in our confession, in our attitude, and our orientation. All of this is to serve the chief end of man, is it not? Summarized in that great uh, first confessional statement, what is the chief end of man? Young people, do you know what the answer to that is? Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? Who knows the answer? All right, adults, chime in. Very good. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Today's text could be a great proof text for that very point. Whoever speaks, as, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves uh, according to the strength that God supplies, in order that, so for this purpose, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him, that is to Jesus, belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Let us serve this year. Let us properly steward the gifts that God has given us. Let us be busy about the work of the kingdom in such a way as to draw attention, glory, and dominion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us structure our motives accordingly. Let us take Peter's admonition and get the advent perspective of what a Christian ought to do in our day and age. To elevate, to make famous, to broadcast to champion, and to acknowledge the glory and dominion of Jesus Christ at every opportunity. This is what Peter would have us do, a vision for 2021, if you will. Perhaps we'll develop some of this further in a future message. This morning, I think we have something to work with for a vision for the closing of last year and the beginning of the next, to seek an Advent perspective, to seek apostolic wisdom, to prepare ourselves for whatever may fall us, uh, come uh, our way this year, according, uh, to, or, uh, and the challenges that are on the horizon, to do so according to apostolic wisdom. And what would the Apostle Peter tell us? Maintain an Advent perspective, a frame of mind, a mindset, and a worldview shaped by the sovereignty of God ordering all of history. And to do so, close to home applications, maintain sober-mindedness, self-control, a level head and be loving and soft-hearted one to another express that love earnestly show hospitality with joy and then point to Jesus Christ if you are to make any success in your sanctification path this week and or this year and as you do so you will ascribe to him the glory he deserves and you acknowledge his dominion his rule and reign and ownership over yourself your family this nation this world this government system everything all the cosmos is his Everything, the world and all who dwell therein, are the Lord's. He has dominion. Let's live like it. This morning, we have the communion table spread before us today. It strikes me as a theme in Peter's letters that he maintains a gospel groundedness in his writings by setting his instructions kind of in orbit around the gravitational epicenter, the lodestar of the gospel. Peter has practical instruction. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor, submit to your husbands. You know, chapter 3. His practical instructions for us today, as we have read, show hospitality, earnestly love one another. But these instructions are set in orbit around the gospel. And even here, Peter can't go a few sentences without saying, love covers a multitude of sins. What is he referring to? The atoning work of Jesus Christ. We can love him, we can love each other, because He first loved us, and His blood covers a multitude of sins. Even today in these practical instructions, we see that Peter has set his admonition in the context of the lodestar, the gravitational epicenter of the gospel, and our faithfulness revolves around acknowledging as much. Jesus' redemptive work. This is a model for us at the Lord's table. Why do we celebrate the Lord's table? With regularity. It's so that we anchor our souls, our motivations, and our intentions on the basis for our fellowship and around our King of Kings, remembering His miraculous work for us on our behalf when He was crucified on Calvary. He, we, here at the Lord's table, we have pictured the essential and sufficient power to cover our sins. Yes, indeed, by application or by implication, it is the very means whereby we can have grace to extend loving-kindness forgiveness towards others, for example, and to be faithful in everything else that God has called us to. We do so recognizing that the essential and sufficient power to live for Jesus Christ was established when he gave his life for us. This should provide us the inspiration to obey 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. This morning, as you approach the table of Jesus Christ, I encourage you to remember the significance of his body and blood. It's the very means, it's the ground, it's the active ingredient, if you will, His work on Calvary to cause us to stand in a day when it would otherwise be impossible. To cause us to be faithful and to draw attention to glorify Him and to assert His dominion, even in a culture that denies as much, and to do so advancing His kingdom all the while and being satisfied and assured of the fact with each footstep that He has ordained for us to walk in, is one step closer to His Advent, His second coming, His glorious return, the consummation of His purposes in all of history, just like He came before, the first Advent, if you will, at Christmas, so He will come again. Let us maintain this Advent perspective and let us look to these elements to do so. And now let us transition in prayer. O Lord, we thank You for the opportunity that Your Word and your table provide us today to reset our priorities and perspective according to your coming in history. Your coming which satisfied the judgment our sins deserve and your coming which is yet on the horizon which will assert and uh, consummate your kingdom forever without end. We thank you that in the bower of the spilled blood of Jesus Christ As a regenerative active ingredient that not only awakens the individual soul to regeneration and newness of life, but will indeed eventually redeem all of creation suffering under the shadow curse and weight of sin. On that final day, because of the spilled blood of Jesus Christ, those whose sins have been washed away will join in sweet fellowship at your table forever, the marriage supper of the Lamb, receiving as our inheritance in Christ Jesus the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, I pray that this event here today would encourage us with that perspective and equip us for your call in the meantime as we victoriously embrace fiery trials knowing that you have purpose in them to magnify yourself, to draw glory to Christ and to assert your dominion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.